You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. This is my boy. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No one! Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I personally had a great, if maniacally busy one. I got an award at work. I worked on a project. And on Thursday night, I got to go to a Quentin Tarantino talk for his new book, which I am currently chomping at the bit to sink my teeth into. But I've got about a thousand other responsibilities to get to first. No movies this week because movie night was like Quentin Tarantino event night. But we've got another hefty episode this week, so it all works out. This month, we're covering the other three major studios of Hollywood's golden age. These studios are known as the Little Three. Other than the fact that these studios were a little bit less successful than the likes of the Big Five, which are Paramount, Warner Brothers, Fox, MGM, and RKO during the golden age. But these Little Three were also missing one key component to make them a full-fledged member of the Big Five. The Big Five were called such because they controlled pretty much every single aspect from development to production to exhibition from within the studio walls. This process was known as vertical integration and was actually the thing that regulated the studio system. If you've forgotten, the studio system was all about making money, not art, leading to this assembly line process of movie making. And while it did stabilize the industry, especially amidst the rampant lawsuits being brought about by Thomas Edison's MPPC, eventually the system would become slowly dismantled. After the 1948 lawsuit, Paramount et al. Versus U.S., which banned the studios from owning theaters. So when it comes to our little three, Columbia and Universal did not have major theater chains, and United Artists gave more money to independent studios to make films than they did internally, which they would then distribute. That is why they are known as the little three. This week, we cover the oldest of the little three, Universal Pictures. We'll meet the founder, the ebbs and flows of the studio, focusing mostly on the golden age of cinema, but I'll give a little bit of the highlights of the ensuing decades all the way up to the modern day. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Universal Studios was founded by Carl Lemley, Mark Dintonvest, Charles O'Bauman, Adam Kessel, Pat Powers, William Swanson, David Horsley, Robert H. Cochran, and Jules Brulator. But the man who would be its first figurehead would be its first president, Carl Lemley. 
Lemley was born in 1867 in Lopheim, Kingdom of Württemberg, which is in modern-day Germany. Lemley would move to the United States in 1883 to chase the American dream, settling in Chicago where he worked as a bookkeeper for 20 years. When Lemley was 39, he left bookkeeping behind with a plan to open a chain of discount clothing stores. But everything changed once he saw a line outside of a Nickelodeon. Stepping inside, his fate was changed forever. The most popular version of what transpired next was that Lemley would watch the box office for hours, counting patrons and calculating the day's revenue. Liking what he saw, not long after, Lemley bought his first Nickelodeon and later started a film rental service as well. As a theater owner, Lemley was, like the other independent theater owners, forced to pay the Edison Trust, aka the MPPC, fees for all films the Trust produced, in addition to the rentals. This also included fees on the equipment they used as most projectors used the Latham Loop, which was a patent held within the MPPC. The Latham Loop was a method slash mechanism that allows the film to go through a camera or projector for long periods of time without breaking as it reduces vibration and tension in the film. To avoid the film rental fees, Lemley, like many other theater owners at this time, just began making his own films. In June 1909, alongside his partners Abe and Julius Stern, Lemley started the Yankee Film Company, later renamed the Independent Moving Pictures Company, or IMP. Imp's first film was Hiawatha from 1909, which was a one-wheel drama based on the epic poem The Song of Hiawatha. It was shot in New Jersey with a second-hand camera. In 1910, Lemley escalated the MPPC feud by scalping Florence Lawrence, aka the Biograph Girl, from her titular studio, which was one of the MPPC trust members. The press he got for doing so was so good, he did it again, and nabbed Mary Pickford from Biograph the following year. Of course, the production on these, quote, unlicensed films led to an increase in lawsuits, which of course were fought by the quote-unquote outlaw production companies. Leading the outlaws was Carl Lemley, whom had founded aforementioned distribution company to fight the MPPC. Things got so contentious, according to Mary Pickford, that several members of IMP actually fled to Cuba for their own safety. According to Pickford, people were shooting at cameras and threw rocks at the actors while they were trying to do scenes. Now, this likely wasn't members of the MPPC proper, but it was almost certainly people they'd hired. The independents, as you likely remember, began moving to the West Coast to escape from the MPPC. In the Southern California sunshine, the early movie moguls used unlicensed equipment and probably shady means to obtain their own film materials to make movies on the sly. Imp moved there in 1910, settling first in Hollywood. Their original location was at Sunset and Gower, which would become known as Gower Gulch, as before long the streets would be lined with wannabe actors in Western or Native American garb, hoping to be discovered and cast in a Western film. While the MPPC had a harder time reaching the independents out West, it didn't completely stop them trying. Believing in the notion of strength in numbers, on June 10, 1912, the assets of Imp and several other smaller production companies were all mushed together to form the Universal Film Manufacturing Company, a vertically integrated studio. Imp was dissolved, but its name continued to be used as a brand name for Lemley's productions. The name Universal, legend has it, came from a truck that passed by while Lemley was pondering this notion. On the side was written... Universal Pipe Fittings. 
The MPPC war would rage until the end of 1912 when the organization began to collapse. And now these outlaw studios were no longer outlaws. Universal's first major hit would be Paul J. Rainey's African Hunt from 1912, which was a nature documentary. In an early glimpse of what the studio would soon make vukus of money producing nearly 20 years later, in 1913, the studio released the two-reel picture Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In 1915, Carl Lemley turned a 230-acre patch of farmland into the world's largest motion picture facility, which he named Universal Studios, the only city in the world at the time devoted entirely to the manufacture of motion pictures. That day, when opening the gates with a golden key, Lemley promised to always make the audience laugh, cry, or sit on the edge of their seats. Then, Lemley did something none of the other moguls did. He invited the public inside the gates for 25 cents a head. During the silent era, people could come to the studio and watch silent films be shot. Lunch was even provided. There was also a studio tour and a zoo, both of which had to be removed when the talkies emerged. During its first years on the West Coast, Universal became the largest studio in Hollywood and remained so for a decade, making films for audiences mostly in small towns by producing inexpensive melodramas, westerns, and serial films. Most of them were two or three reelers, meaning no longer than 45 minutes to an hour in length. While they would be known for these cheaper films for a good chunk of their history, that didn't mean there weren't big-budget movies being produced as well. The first major Universal film was 1914's Damon and Pythias, which was the first film shot on the Universal backlot before the studio had officially opened. Despite being the most successful studio in the United States, Lemley remained a cautious figurehead. He chose not to develop a theater chain and made sure that all films produced were covered by money they actually had. Lemley did not want to take on any debts. Ironically, this caution almost caused the studio to go bankrupt after actor-turned-director Eric von Stroheim insisted on excessively lavish production elements for his films Blind Husbands from 1919 and Foolish Wives from 22. But the studio managed to offset much of this thanks to a huge ad campaign that successfully attracted moviegoers, more or less. During the production of the latter of these films, Von Stroheim would clash with wunderkind Irving Thalberg, Lemley's former assistant turned head of Los Angeles production for Universal at just 20 years old. Lemley still lived on the East Coast at this point and needed eyes and ears in Los Angeles. In Thalberg's opinion, Von Stroheim was spending too much money for his sophomore efforts. This included spending a shit ton of money creating a painstakingly accurate replica of Monte Carlo on the backlot and shooting far too much footage. Things got so tense that Thalberg shut down the film's production, removed the film cameras from Von Stroheim's studio, and took over the editing process, shortening the film from 30 reels to 10. The film didn't break even, though it did well enough for Lemley to give Von Stroheim another chance. But this time, Von Stroheim would not be permitted to star in the film or even appear in it. When similar issues arose on his next film, Merry-Go-Round from 1923, Thalberg fired Von Stroheim while the film was still very early on into shooting, the first director at a major studio to ever suffer this fate. His replacement would be the one who got the credit for directing the film. Unsurprisingly, this turn of events was quite the talk of the town in the ensuing weeks, and Von Stroheim never appeared in or directed another Universal film. 
Other films that released under the tutelage of Thalberg included two more of the studio's early monster films, The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923 and The Phantom of the Opera from 1925. These films both starred Lon Chaney, whom became the most profitable star of Universal's silent era and was an early master of makeup effects, giving him the name The Man of 1000 Faces. Universal would even make a biopic of their early star, aptly titled Man of a Thousand Faces, in 1957, which used the iconic Phantom of the Opera opera sets. The Phantom of the Opera sets were kept in Soundstage 28, where they would remain for nearly 90 years because people thought the stage was haunted and if they took them down, something bad might happen. As a result, those sets appeared in countless TV shows and films. That was until the soundstage was demolished in 2014. At the time, it was the oldest standing building ever made for a film's production. Thalberg was lured away around 1924 to MGM by Louis B. Mayer with the promise of higher pay. Without Thalberg, Universal almost immediately fell to a second-tier studio. It also didn't help that until 1927, Lemley had a clean picture policy. With the departure of Thalberg, Lemley officially replaced him with his son, Carl Jr. It was Jr.'s 21st birthday present. The promotion wasn't a popular one, as Universal was already notorious for nepotism. Carl Sr. had several relatives on the payroll already, so much so that he was known as Uncle Carl on the lot. And famously, someone's son, nephew, what have you, who gets their job because of this reason, they're often known for resting on their laurels and not doing their job because, you know, mommy, daddy, uncle, cousin, whatever, gave it to them. This was not the case for Carl Jr., when Junior was brought aboard, Universal was already in production on their first sound picture, 1928's Melody of Love, borrowing sound equipment from Fox to do so. Junior convinced his father to modernize the studio, building Stage 12, the largest on the lot at the time. Junior also bought a few theaters, converted the studio to allow internal sound production, and convinced him to make the higher budget films like the ones the other studios were currently making bank with. This didn't bear fruit at first, as their first foray into sound pictures using their own equipment, which was 1929's Showboat, was widely panned as it was based on the book and not the musical. But other musicals would follow, including 1929's Broadway and 1930's King of Jazz, which was Universal's first full-color film using two-strip Technicolor. Unfortunately, King of Jazz was also a major flop. Speaking of flops, the film called Junior's Flop while it was in production mostly due to its lack of a love story, the war epic 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front would defy all odds, become a box office smash, and took home that year's Best Picture Oscar. The film also cemented Junior's place within the company. But of course, the biggest contribution Carl Jr. would bring to the studio's history was its monsters. Feeling the effects of the Great Depression, films had to be made cheaply while still being entertaining. So, inspired by German Expressionism, Universal had been making horror films in the style since the late 1920s, for example, 1927's The Cat and the Canary. Since German Expressionism films were, by design, made cheaply, copying this style meant that Universal could do the same. Also, German filmmakers were beginning to flee to the States because of what was happening in their countries at the time, so that helped too. The first major monster film was, of course, 1932's Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. The project was originally pitched for Lon Chaney, but he died before the script had been finished. This film would cost just one-third of what Western Front had. And, to just 
fully get as much bang for their buck as possible. When filming would complete on the English-speaking film, the Spanish-speaking production would start filming on the same sets at night with the men in the same costumes. The women on the Spanish production were more scantily clad because the Spanish-speaking countries were less strict in their censorship, so obviously they had different costumes. Also, the Spanish one is probably better, just FYI. Audiences went crazy for Dracula, and soon Frankenstein, based on Mary Shelley's novel of the same name, followed later that year starring Boris Karloff after newly minted movie star Bela Lugosi turned down the part. The film's sequel, 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein, is often considered Universal's best classic horror film. Of course, there were other films that were rushed to the screen, and Universal would tap that horror tree for every box office dollar they could get out of it, oftentimes making a horror film for the sake of making a horror film. Artistry was not the name of the game here, but you know, what are you going to do? If you'd like to take a deeper dive into Universal's monsters, my first October theme all the way back in 2020 was all of their histories, if you want to take a look at that. Or I guess a listen. Another major part of 1930s Universal films were its serials. This included Danger Island in 1931, but the most successful was Flash Gordon, which was made in 1936. In a time before television, audiences would have to come back week after week to the theater to find out what happened to their favorite heroes. Despite the risks, Universal decided to make bigger pictures as well, and bigger pictures meant bigger risk. And it really didn't help that the studio invested a whole lot of money to modernize right before the Depression had struck. At this time, the theater chain was kiboshed, but Junior managed to hold onto the studio's distribution studio and production operations, forever cementing its status as one of the little three of Hollywood's golden age. The Lemleys would bet everything on 1936's Showboat, a lavish remake of their 1929 venture. The only difference, though, is that this time they based the film on the Broadway show instead of the book. Appalled by Junior's extreme spending, though, the stockholders would only allow the film to begin production if the Lemleys got a $750,000 loan, the first one they'd needed in the studio's 26-year history. The collateral for this loan? The Lemleys' controlling stake in the company. Well, the production of Showboat went $300,000 over budget. Standard Capital, who'd given the loan, called it in. Universal could not pay that loan, so Standard seized control of the studio on April 2, 1936, and unceremoniously unseated father and son. When Showboat released just a few months later, it would become a financial success, but it was too late for the Lemleys. While Carl Sr. would briefly work in film distribution after this, neither Lemley made another motion picture. Carl Sr. died three years later in 1939. Junior died in obscurity, 40 years to the day after his father. And so began the era of Standard Capital, who immediately got to reap the rewards of films like the Flash Gordon series and 1936's My Man Godfrey, an unusual foray into screwball films for the studio that earned Universal six Oscar nominations. Jay Cheever Cowden of Standard Capital had assumed control of Universal and focused on severe cost-cutting the moment he took power. While Universal was not known for having big names on its roster, it was known more for borrowing from the larger studios, several of what few major talents they did have left when Cowden took over. Joe Pasternak, whom had been working in Germany for Universal to create German-language films to appear to the international market once sound took over, was called back to the United States when Cowden took control in the hopes that the success he'd had in Europe could be copied to Universal proper. 
this gamble would pay off. And when Pasternak's first U.S.-produced film, directed by Henry Coster, Three Smart Girls, released in 1936, the film was so financially successful that, according to legend, it fixed all of the studio's financial problems in a single swoop. Also from that film came actress Dina Durbin, who would have the most successful years of her career at Universal, growing up before the audience's very eyes. By the early 1940s, the studio focused on lower-budget productions, which still made up the vast majority of all its releases. The majority of these films were westerns, melodramas, serials. In addition to the ones I mentioned, there was Buck Jones, the Ritz Brothers, and the Andrews Sisters. And of course, they were producing just a ton of sequels to the horror films. These were cheap because most of the costumes, sets, and props could be reused basically until they wore out. Most of the actors they used continued to be borrowed from other companies or were up-and-comers that would go on to bigger studios. Rudolph Valentino, Betty Davis, and even James Dean would all pass through Universal on their ways to stardom at other studios. When it came to borrowing actors, though, James Stewart, who was an MGM man, got his first leading roles while on loan to Universal, starting with Next Time We Love from 1936. Ex-Paramount stars W.C. Fields and Mae West, the latter of whom, you know, had trouble after censorship took in because her whole thing was double entendres, they would also find work on the Universal lot, as they did in 1940's My Little Chickadee. Universal's first two Hitchcock films were made this way as well, with Hitchcock on loan, and those were Saboteur from 1942 and Shadow of a Doubt from 1943, which Hitchcock very often has said was his favorite film he ever did. It was also shot near my hometown, so that's kind of cool. Without a doubt, though, the biggest stars at Universal during the 1940s were, of course, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. The two men got their start on the vaudeville circuit before moving to radio, where Universal snapped them up. Their first major film together, Buck Privates from 1941, became a major hit and led to a long-term contract within the studio. They would become the biggest box office stars of the era, but when their popularity would wane, the studio teamed the duo up with their monsters and their popularity pretty much reset. Universal would make a color picture for the first time in nearly 10 years with 1942's Arabian Nights, which capitalized on the audience's taste for foreign locales. Insert problematic joke here. It created a new genre known as Easterns, despite the fact that they mostly starred white actors in brownface. In 1945, British baron and industrialist J. Arthur Rank, who had owned a stake in the studio for nearly a decade, bought into a four-way merger with his production company, Universal, International Pictures, and producer Kevin Young in the hopes to increase his U.S. presence. This venture, Universal World Pictures, would fail within a year. But Rank and International remained after Universal, and the two studios ultimately merged, becoming Universal International on July 30th, 1946. International had been founded just two years earlier by Leo Spitz, the former head of RKO, and William Getz, the former VP of 20th Century Fox. Getz would be made the head of production at the renamed Universal International Pictures. One of Getz's first moves was to put an end to the B pictures. He wanted Universal to be seen as a more prestigious studio. He also cut the number of films being released from 50 to 35 a year. 
Universal International also became the American distributor for Rank's British productions, like Laurence Olivier's Hamlet from 1948, which won the Best Picture Oscar that year, though not for Universal. While the distribution side of the business would do quite well at this time, and it always did pretty well, the production side was still struggling. This new all-prestige pictures thing didn't seem to be working out. Guess would be gone from Universal International within three years, and the studio almost immediately returned to low-budget and serial films such as Ma and Pa Kettle from 1949, which was a nine-film serial spinoff of the studio's 1947 hit, The Egg and I, which had been about two city folk trying to rent a chicken farm. There was also the serial Francis from 1950, which was about a talking mule in the army and predated Mr. Ed by 11 years. By the end of the 1940s, Rank, as rich people often do, had lost interest in his new project and the movie biz in general and sold his shares to Decca Records, which would take full control of Universal in 1952. Besides Abbott and Costello, the studio only retained the Walter Lance Cartoon Studio, whose shorts were released before Universal International's films. In the early 1950s, Universal stuck with what it was good at. Melodramas, the Arabian Nights films often starring Tony Curtis, and the occasional sci-fi horror flick like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Also around this time, far later than the other studios had, Universal began a training school to foster and grow talent, essentially, you know, making them camera ready over a period of time. Talent to come out of this program included Clint Eastwood, Rock Hudson, and Tony Curtis. But while they trained these performers, they still needed established talent. Universal hadn't felt the pain of 1948's U.S. versus Paramount Pictures, which had forced the film studios to give up their theater chains, and it didn't affect Universal because, well, they had no theater chains. Despite, you know, having this advantage, seemingly, DECA would continue to keep picture budgets lean. Since leading actors were becoming increasingly free to work where and when they wanted, in 1950, MCA agent Lou Wasserman made a deal with Universal for his client James Stewart that would change the industry forever. The deal would give Stewart a low base salary, but Stewart would get a share in the film's profits of his three upcoming Universal films in lieu of what would have been a larger salary. When the first two of these pictures, Harvey and Winchester 73, both released in 1950 and also showcased two very different Jimmy Stewarts, proved to be hits, the arrangement would become the rule for many future productions at Universal and eventually at other studios as well. If the film did well, everybody did well. Well, not everybody, but like, you know what I mean? The pretty people and the moguls and the shareholders, they did well. By the late 50s, the training program had already begun to bear fruit, and Rock Hudson would make the studio bank when he was teamed up with Doris Day in 1957's Pillow Talk. The film would be nominated for five Oscars. But if you were to see only one 1950s Universal film, I would pick Touch of Evil from 1958. Directed by Orson Welles and starring Charlton Heston as a Mexican detective, it's problematic, it was the 50s. Universal pulled out all of the best talent on its roster to make the film because they had Orson Welles. The studio heads apparently liked the dailies, but when it was assembled into a film, Universal didn't know what to do with it. It was just too dark for them. What happened next would be the reason why this was Wells' last film with an American studio. When the film was screened in Los Angeles, it was critically panned, and then it was only released as a double feature with the film The Female Animal. 
Naturally, Wells didn't feel eager to work with an American studio. He'd been screwed too many times. But as time has passed and it finally started getting into the hands of people who could appreciate the film for what it was, Touch of Evil has become considered one of Wells' best films, second only to probably Citizen Kane. By the late 1950s, as you're all too aware if you know film history or listen to this podcast, the motion picture business was in a perilous state. The golden age was over. The HUAC trials had forced the studios to make shallow films. The television was everywhere. And as a result of all of this, or maybe even just some of this, theater attendance was down. The Music Corporation of America, MCA, was the world's largest talent agency and the one whom had made that lucrative Stewart deal. Well, since they had made that deal in the early 50s, they had gone on to become a powerful television producer by the end of the 1950s, but didn't have a space to make their own television and were forced to rent spaces to produce said television. And because of its very hit or miss mixed bag of films, Universal was in a rough state and even had to completely shut down for a short time. I couldn't find a concrete reason as to why this happened. I'm assuming it was financial, you know, because it was just of the time period, but But yeah, the whole studio had shut down. And so now the flatlining Universal agreed to sell its 360-acre lot to MCA in 1958 for the low price of $11 million, which MCA renamed Review Studios. While MCA owned the studio lot, but not Universal the production company, it became increasingly influential on Universal's productions as the studio became a tenant of Universal City. MCA upgraded and modernized the lot, while MCA clients like Doris Day, Cary Grant, and Alfred Hitchcock were all signed to Universal contracts. Inevitably, MCA took over Universal Pictures in the summer of 1962. Every MCA client was signed to a Universal contract, and the talent representation side of the business was closed. Lou Wasserman was made the president of the company. And now, with MCA in charge, Universal at last became a full-blown A-film movie studio with major A-list talent and directors under contract producing commercial films. The studio tour even came back in 1964, which as most of you likely know still runs to this day, and a full-blown theme park also followed. The first major film produced during this transition was 1960's Spartacus, which was shot both on the backlot and on location in Spain. The film would win four Oscars, and to this day, the square of warriors used in the film still stands on the backlot. Another film whose sets have a permanent place on the backlot are those from 1962's To Kill a Mockingbird. The film, which would earn Gregory Peck an Oscar, is as poignant today as it was 60 years ago. The courthouse built for the film has been featured in dozens, if not hundreds, of films since, including as the clock tower in Back to the Future. The most notable directing addition to Universal's roster at this time, of course, Alfred Hitchcock. Starting in 1955, Hitchcock had been making the show Alfred Hitchcock Presents for review and once again began making motion picture films for Universal. His first, after MCA fully bought the studio, was 1963's The Birds. Hitchcock was a universal man until his retirement in 1979, making six feature films in total for the studio. 
Now, during this period, television was very much Universal's major output, and it was the major producer for most of of all networks' programmings. Universal would become the first to produce television films as well, which were a major staple of the era, starting with See How They Run in 1964. Many of these films dealt with taboo subjects of the day, like interracial relationships and homosexuality. But Lou Osterman always believed that movies and TV could and should coexist, and if anyone tried to prove that statement right at this time, it was universal. During this era, musicals, which were a ploy to get audiences back into the theater, were made. But like now, Universal's reputation with musicals was a little spotty. For every hit like Thoroughly Modern Millie, or 1978's The Wiz, or 1978's The Blues Brothers, there was at least one flop like 1969's Sweet Charity, despite that being Bob Fosse's directorial debut. Well, in film anyway. Universal did produce several cinematic hits in the 1970s, including Airport, which was the first major disaster film, and the highest grossing film of 1970, becoming Universal's biggest hit at the time. There was also The Sting from 1973, which earned Universal its first Best Picture win since All Quiet on the Western Front. Clint Eastwood, once a member of the acting training program, directed his first film for Universal with 1971's play Misty for Me, which kickstarted a thus far six-decade directorial career. George Lucas's first full studio film would also be at Universal, and that was American Graffiti. The film also became a jumping-off point for the careers of several of the film's actors, including Richard Dreyfuss. And of course, after starting in television at Universal, Steven Spielberg's second theatrical studio film, Jaws, would become not just the most successful Universal film, but also the highest grossing film of all time, creating the horror subgenre dealing with maniacal animals. To this day, Universal still has a close relationship with the director and Amblin, Spielberg's personal production company, named after the short film that got him hired at Universal in the first place, calls the Universal backlot home. The string of hits kept coming throughout the 70s. Universal would take home another Best Picture Oscar for 1978's Vietnam War epic The Deer Hunter, the movie that allowed Michael Cimino to make Heaven's Gate, if you remember. Other films were Animal House, The Jerk, On Golden Pond, E.T., which took the highest grossing film mantle from Jaws, Back to the Future, Back to the Future sequels, An American Tale, the studio's first feature-length animated film, if you can believe it, and Do the Right Thing, and Backdraft, like... Universal just kept, you know, they the, the late 70s to the mid 80s were a very good time at Universal. They also won another Best Picture Oscar for 1985's Out of Africa for good measure. Then, of course, there was Jurassic Park from 1993, which once again became the highest grossing film of all time, even as the film business was becoming once again financially unpredictable due to video games and the home video market. That same year, Spielberg Schindler's List would also take home another Best Picture Oscar for Universal. For like the next like 20 years, Universal would start changing hands pretty rapidly. Wanting to expand the company's broadcast and cable presence, Wasserman was on the hunt for a rich partner. He found one in Japanese electronics manufacturer Matsushita Electric, today known as Panasonic, which acquired MCA for $6.6 billion in 1990. Matsushita, unable to deal with the business cultural differences between Japan and America, sold 80% of MCA Universal to the Canadian drinks distributor Seagram for $5.7 billion in the mid-1990s, hoping to build an entertainment empire around Universal. When the fluctuating profits of Hollywood proved too chaotic for the company in June 2000, Seagram was sold to French water and media company Vivendi, which owned Studio Canal and the conglomerate 
conglomerate then became known as Vivendi Universal. After that, Universal acquired the United States distribution rights of several of Studio Canal's films, including Mulholland Drive from 2001, but the best performing film out of this deal was easily 2004's Love Actually. On the Universal side, things were a little spotty. While its predecessor, Babe, was so well-received, it had garnered seven Academy Award nominations in 1995, including Best Picture. Babe, Pig in the City was a colossal flop when it released in 1998, costing several of the higher-ups to lose their job. This wasn't the first major flop they'd had, so they were very much in need of a hit. Best example of that, 1995's Waterworld. Great theme park show. Horrendous film. It had been very expensive. They were not recouping money. They desperately needed a hit, and they would find one in an old friend. 1999's The Mummy was a completely new story, just using a popular former franchise's name as its jumping off point. The film garnered two sequels and a spin-off series of films, and its sequel gave Dwayne Johnson his film debut in 2001. This era's other highlights included Meet the Parents from 2000, Hannibal from 2001, The Born Identity films, and the first of the Fast and the Furious films. That was kind of the highlights of the Vivendi era. But burdened with debt, in 2004, Vivendi Universal sold 80% of its company to General Electric, the parent of NBC. The resulting media super conglomerate was renamed NBC Universal, while Universal Studios Inc. remained the name of the production arm. After that deal, GE owned 80% of NBC Universal and acquired the rest in 2011. As soon as they did that, GE sold 51% of its holding to Comcast, with the other 49 being sold off in 20. 2013, again to Comcast. Comcast is the current parent company for Universal Pictures. I did not, I knew it bounced around a little bit. I did not know it was that much. Major acquisitions and deals to grow the whole Universal brand and the film output of Comcast since then have included DreamWorks Animation in 2016, as well as a 10-year first-look deal with Blumhouse Pictures in 2014. The studio is known to this day for its working partnerships with its directors and artists, with modern ones including Jordan Peele, Judd Apatow, and Jason Blum. Universal continues to take home the big awards too, most recently taking the Best Picture Oscar for 2019's Green Book. The most recent hits for Universal include the Jurassic World franchise, the Despicable Me franchise and its spin-offs, as well as horror films from Blumhouse, as well as Jordan Peele. Universal is considered a member of the modern Big Six and released, as of recording this, the second largest film at the box office for 2022, Jurassic World Dominion. Black Panther might unseat that because the hype is very strong, but we shall see. One thing is for certain, though, there is nothing little about Universal anymore. Houston, we have a problem. We're on a mission from God. No, Kelly Clarkson! Oh, boy, is this great! Hey, bud. Let's party! Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. He hates these hands! Come out, come out, wherever you are. We all go a little mad sometimes. It's a liar! We belong dead. Death is only the beginning. What do they got in there, King Kong? 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you just buy me a coffee. Today, I got, was really, really, really basic and went and got Dunkin' Donuts. It's it's fine. I've also got merch. Check it out with the link in the show notes. Next week, the history of Columbia Pictures. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Bye.